Hello and welcome to the Professional Empathy Podcast. My name's Leanne Butterworth and today we are talking to Katie Fletcher about empathy and engineering. So we're going to be exploring the role of empathy for engineers in creating better outcomes for their teams and their clients and communities. So this is the Professional Empathy Podcast. If you'd like to learn more, we're at empathyfirst.com.au. kept saying to me lately about empathy and engineering. So I'm like, I have to talk about this. I am an engineer and there are probably support groups for that, but I specialize in stormwater engineering, which is kind of a specialist field, I suppose, but basically a civil engineer. And I currently work at Arup, um, but I have worked in both consulting and local government. Um, and I've also worked in really, really big companies and really, really small companies where there's almost none of us in the office. So I've seen kind of the full range of engineering. I've also done site work and construction too. And I am here because my friend Leanne Butterworth likes to talk about empathy, as do I. So I have agreed to come and do a podcast. Um, but yes, I did a talk last week at a conference on this exact topic so hopefully all the information is fresh in my head i think we need to go right back to basics because whenever i've said to somebody i'm doing a podcast on empathy and engineering they're like huh what? <laughs> so yeah. i think there is that misperception that empathy is dry empathy is boring emp like not empathy engineering Dry, boring, yeah. <laughs> numbers, maths, just do your job, go home, make the building not fall over. So mm -hmm. give me a little bit of insight about how, what your talk was about, how you even came to make this connection between empathy and engineering. Okay. This was one of the very earliest slides in my presentation because it was the same sort of thing for me. I talked to people even before... I had the conference presentation when I was preparing it say, oh yes, I'm going to talk about empathy and engineering. And they say, isn't that an oxymoron? And yeah. it's a pretty, pretty fair comment. Um, and for a lot of people it is. Um, Cause yeah, engineering, I suppose most people think is very much just dry criteria based assessment. And a lot of it is that, and I love criteria based assessment. Um, but the way that I think empathy really needs a bigger focus in engineering is that we don't incorporate, like we don't account for the right criteria when we're doing the criteria-based assessment. So if you are trying to solve the puzzle um, and fit all the different elements together, so we have to deal with, you know, will the pipe for your stormwater fit next to your water main for drinking water and does it fit in the road? And do you meet your environmental constraints and your safety constraints and cost? But unless you actually know why you're designing the asset and how the community interacts with it and have that sort of empathy and understanding of the social implications of your design, you're probably not solving the complete puzzle. Um, you know, it's just a small subset of it. Um, yeah, so... I suppose the, the biggest example that I have is, I guess, empathy for personal safety. 
So one of the examples we have is, you know, if you're going to do a waterway restoration project in the middle of the city, so there might be a, an ugly concrete drain just running through a park at the moment, and there's a lot of them in Brisbane where it's just flat grass and then a concrete channel in the middle. We go through and rehabilitate those into what look like natural waterways and have all these plants and we create habitat and there's environmental benefit and flooding outcomes and all of that. But what if in the process of doing that, you actually make it creepy as hell and I'm not gonna walk there at night because I think I'm gonna be murdered on the way home. You know, it's having that understanding of the social impact and outcomes of what we do. Um, but that, I guess that was only one aspect of engineering empathy. Ugh. It's so hard to say. Empathy in engineering is that design element. Because um, in your mind, what is empathy? So when you're talking empathy in engineering, go back to what is your definition of empathy? Like what? Make sure that we're both on the same page and everybody, all our listeners, thousands of people <laughs> on the same page. Are you up to millions of listeners yet? Yes, I'm sure. Millions. By the time this airs, I'm sure. I'm sure. Millions. Um, <laughs> yeah. So empathy for me. I explain, I suppose, by comparison with sympathy, because I think most people understand sympathy, and I describe this in my talk as basically, well, oh gee, I'm sorry you broke your leg. Yes. Or, you know, um, I'm sorry you're sad, but yeah. empathy to me is like the engineer's feeling, because it's functional and it's practical, because it's um, being able to, I guess, put yourself in the shoes of somebody else and understand their needs and limitations. And I like that because it means that we can fix it. Yeah, it means like you can respond appropriately. So, yeah, if you've got that empathy, it's a more practical, functional thing, which is what engineers like, um, that you can actually change the way that you do things to fix it. Yeah, absolutely. So you're looking at it from their point of view. So you might still come to the same yeah. result, which is we're still going to fix this, but in making other people feel heard, they then are part of your solution. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, there's a lot of projects going on at the moment um, with co-design. So not just doing like a traditional stakeholder engagement and community engagement where they say, here's a poster of what we're designing, you know, send in a form if you hate it or you've got any ideas. Yeah, okay. um, but making it much more collaborative and actually inviting the community to take part in a much more collaborative design process. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, actually, on that, we had one good question after my talk last week where somebody flagged the issue of, you know, how do you do that collaborative design and stakeholder, like community engagement with different subsets of the community that might not be able to do that as well? Yeah. So, perhaps for, you know, mental health reasons some people aren't sort of able and willing to go and take part in a big community collaborative thing yeah so how do you incorporate their input into the process as well yeah absolutely and I don't have a great answer for that at the moment yeah other than try every different avenue to get information from people and hopefully yeah. one of them will work for everybody so but also that um advocacy and consumer engagement so if the people themselves can't there's often consumer advocates on their behalf that mm. we can tap into 
Um, okay, so empathy being the ability to understand somebody else's point of view and then respond appropriately mm-hmm. or differently. Um, so I know this, I guess for me, isn't that obvious? Is that not obvious? <laughs> Is that not? I don't think so. I think we're all like engineers are mostly nerds and we just love solving problems and ticking boxes. And, you know, I've got a fully compliant design. Woohoo. Yay me. And I did it under budget. There's not, um, you know, historically all depends where you work and at what time. Um, There's not as much emphasis on that. Um, So in the past, you know, it would be called gold plating, which was the, you know, taboo swear word of engineering design of, you know, you're paid to do a set scope. Don't get out of your lane. Um, Mm. That is changing a lot these days. And there's certainly some companies that are known for it more than others. Um, But no, it's not kind of inherent, I suppose, in the design. You just design to the standards that you're told to design to. And then, so what are the implications then of, not having empathy in engineering. <laughs> Designing stuff that's creepy and I'll get murdered on my way home. <laughs> God. Um, <laughs> you know, it's an extreme example, but I think um, it's, you know, the implications are a lot more obvious for things like disability compliance, but now they have standards for things like, you know, wheelchair ramps and all of that. Yeah but there's all these other implications that you don't necessarily know about. So it might be that, um, you know, you've designed an asset that doesn't actually provide any extra benefit. It won't necessarily be a negative sort of safety implication, but it might just be that we're not designing it sort of as good as it could be. Because of budgetary restraints or you just, it's just not your bag. Well, most of the things I think you could incorporate without a lot of extra budget. It's partly that we don't have design standards to guide people that way. It kind of relies on individual people to just, you know, have that empathy and understanding and then willing clients to to sort of act on that. Um, But, yeah, that's kind of the main barrier for us at the moment is there just there aren't any... Um, design standards in my field, certainly in stormwater uh, engineering, that talk about any of this. Okay. So then what's your aim? When you get up and talk in front of a conference room full of engineers, what is it that you tell them and what is it that you want them to take away? Yeah. So it's it's two-pronged for me, which sounds bad. But um, the first one is, I guess, to what we're trying to do is to actually change the way that our guidelines are written or at least provide some sort of technical guidance and documentation to include this stuff because at the moment it yeah it's just really not embedded in the design guidelines they're very dry and quantitative and you know not actually considering or requiring designers to consider these social aspects so educating people as to you know what they could do in their designs what the different needs are of different subsets of the community um, and just getting that embedded in the design process instead of relying on individuals to come up with it themselves Uh, but the other aspect of it which 
I'm really passionate about is empathy in the actual design teams because I think there's like I've seen a hell of a lot of people even over my career sort of 16 years or so leave the industry because they've just had enough like it's not a touchy-feely huggy kind of place Um, and I think there's a lot of work to be done to actually have that empathy for your team to understand how the how to get the most out of them without killing them basically yeah um which you know literally in some senses so yeah it's that empathy and design trying to actually fix our guidelines and promote awareness for what we can do to change design but also um increasing the empathy with your team members to actually give a rats about people's sort of well-being beyond hey let's do a lunchtime yoga class Um, (laughs) (laughs) like I don't have time for yoga I'm stressed out of my brain you know Um, it doesn't work so you know trying to actually keep the engineering profession more stable and keep people in it longer and encourage more to come and join and that's a huge one so so they're two very different things and both of them like we talk about so we do um, external empathy and we do internal empathy so the internal stuff is so important is so important that you're allowed to be human at work you're allowed to actually have conversations that are personal and real and you're allowed to listen to other people and but the thing about workplace mental health and you've just touched on that is quite often there's an eap for when stuff's broken or there's yoga and there's not a lot in between. There's not like <laughs> relationship building. There's not how to be yeah. a nice person. There's. <laughs> I needed that one years ago. I could really have done with that one. Yeah. And I think like even I, back in the day, I was very project focused. I wasn't people focused. Mm. And there's not enough communication at the moment that you will get better results as a people focused manager and team member than you will as a project focused. Well, there was very much, there was always a sense of you are replaceable. Um, You see a lot of things on LinkedIn all the time going, you know, people will be advertising for your job in five minutes if you quit. Like there'll be somebody else there to fill your role. And really, certainly in, in stormwater, that's not true a lot of the time. Like it's a relatively small industry and we really need to take care of the people that we have beyond it's an, just a nice thing to do um, to keep people in that field um, and keep them feeling valued and that we give a rats about their career progression as well as their well-being. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I was as big well. a culprit of it. Yeah. I was as bad as anybody at it before. Um, but I think certainly like, when you're going into a male dominated field or a traditionally male field, I guess I had this underlying thought that I had to act masculine or what yeah. I perceived to be masculine yeah. in order to get ahead. Yeah. Um, and over the years that's crumbled away gradually. And now I'd wear dresses and paint my nails, but it took a long time to actually get to that point to realize that, you know, having a different way of viewing things was actually an asset. Yeah. Um, so yeah, now I'm fully sort of leaning into that as, well, this is, you know, the way I view things is much more heavily and well, what is the social outcome 
of this asset as much as I love the maths and the problem-solving yeah. parts of it. Yeah, because also I think people have kind of forgotten that they're allowed to be different and they're allowed to be human and they're allowed to... Uh, and that there's actually, there's a social return, like you said, like it's nice to be nice to people, but there's actually, it's cheaper to keep someone mm. and nurture them and work with them than it is to replace someone. So as much as we love altruism, like let's all be good people. If you're talking <laughs> to people who love numbers, then actually having a, a good workplace mental health culture saves you money and makes you money. That's why I sort of said before, like, isn't that, obvious but it's really not well it's it's quite challenging there's a lot of kind of established paradigms to overcome um because a lot of it i think in engineering is very much you know it's still that hard cost money time sort of yeah. you know safety's in there and environment's in there but ultimately it's you know we're in consulting it's a money-making business and you're valued on how you can design it the best, cheapest, fastest way. Yeah. Uh, the people management side of that, I think, has a lot of catching up to do, uh, but we're gradually doing it. I think historically, in well, even today, there's a expectation, I suppose, that in the week before a deadline, you're just going to be at work late every night um, because that's, you know, the last minute things all happen there. And I hate that because... For a start, I work part-time. I'm trying to have hobbies. I'm trying to deal with health issues myself. And family. Yeah, and family. Oh, yeah, I forgot that one. <laughs> there is uh, the best <laughs> But, you know, I need to manage my time more effectively so I don't have those peaks and troughs. Yeah. So we're trying to shift from the paradigm where individual people work late the week before their deadlines to instead trying to balance the resourcing better and just have more people on the project when the deadlines are due and then drop it back down again. Yeah. Uh, Cause then, you know, everybody's getting their deadlines done and hopefully the quality improves because you're not having people up till 3am churning yeah. out crap. And that's a really, really important part of it because it's all well and good to have an EAP and yoga, but if the, if the culture is still budget at work till 3am, no mm. amount of yoga is going to fix that. No. That's, that's so yeah, a, it's coming out at the wrong end. It's like yeah. putting a bandaid on a, you know, shark bite. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that's a top so, yeah. down approach as well. That's not a bottom up approach. That's a, that's got to come from yeah. the top. Um, yeah. And that's why we need like executives on board and management on board because yeah, all the yoga and barbecue in the world yeah. can, isn't going to change if you're still being driven on late nights, KPIs. Like, and But those people can't even take part in those things anyway. Like, I remember once we had, not at like a present company, but once we had um, like this big team bonding event and it went for three or four hours and it was like this crazy thing that everybody was supposed to go on this project and bond with each other, but they'd scheduled it the week that we had deliverables, like things going out the door that were due and they made it mandatory and actually threatened to shut down the server for that time to force people to go and do this team bonding instead of 
rescheduling it to a more practical time when yeah. people weren't busy because then but all that happened that? is people go to that at that point you know upper management yeah um but yeah that's you know having that understanding of why people don't want to go to your event isn't because you need to just force them to go like yeah. it's because they're actually got work to do so you can either reschedule your hugging um for the next week or relax the deadlines you know it's not solving the actual problem yeah exactly exactly so then if we have you seen it work really well anywhere the trouble is that even within individual companies it can vary from person to person yeah so depending on who the design manager is on a specific job it could go one way or the other um but part of what i'm trying to do is to push for basically how I want to run a team at the very start. So setting the expectation as to this is how I'm going to manage the job. This is how we're going to sort out um, even having like backup resources and support people. Cause often people don't want to have like 10 different names on their project all charging to that job code. They want to have just a small core team because they think it will keep the costs down. I always push to have a couple of extra people at your, you know, your kickoff meetings and your start meetings and get them just aware of the project. It takes like an hour to get these extra people in just so that if someone in my team's sick, they should be allowed to be sick and be at home and I can draw in one of the sort of backup resources. Yeah. Or when, you know, when things get busy and we need help with stuff that we've got extra people we can draw on. Um, and that's not a traditional oh, okay. approach to engineering. It gets pushback because of these sort of long held beliefs about keeping costs down. Um, so you have to set the expectation. Like you have to have somebody in there that's a bit of a Rottweiler um, to just say, this is how it's going to run. This is how you'll get the best out of the team. We will meet our deadlines if we adopt this approach. You know, yeah. there's less risk. Um, yeah. And it gives that, yeah, you've got to be able to allow people that flexibility. Human. Yeah. And it's like, if you get sick, that's something that happens. You shouldn't be, you know, forcing yourself to stay on because then you end up ruining your health. Like yeah. I did. <laughs> We're both croaky today. Um, yeah, I know. So then if we go to the external stuff, because obviously the keeping costs down is important. But then if we go to the external stuff and we think, okay, you're talking about why it's important to not have parks where people feel they're going to be murdered. That's a bigger social issue. Um, what are the benefits then of incorporating empathy? So the social benefits to, to incorporating empathy in your design? Because you've said that previously... It's not, we just sort of do it, tick some boxes, build a building, move on to the next thing. What do yep. you see as the benefit of getting broader than that and getting more, I guess, empathetic, social, human-centered? Yep. Um, so I suppose with stormwater engineering that I do, a lot of the work that we do involves landscaping um, and creeks and vegetation. So it's sort of areas that provides a really good opportunity for people to interact with nature and 
there's been sort of countless studies now, I suppose, documenting why it's good for people's health and well-being to actually get out into what they call blue space and green space. So green space around plants and nature and blue space around water. Um, so there's a good opportunity there. There's um, a number of case studies that I went through in the talk as well. You know, some of that is actually providing that interaction with blue and green space. A lot of the time, um, you know, you can design something that's really cool, but they design it in a way that really excludes the community from the asset. So engineers love putting safety fences around stuff um, or, you know, building banks so steep that maybe the de one design guideline says that that's okay but it doesn't pass the Nana test. Like, could your Nana actually get down to the creek if the kids want to play there? Yeah. Um, there's also opportunities to incorporate a lot for um, deaf and blind people. So you can include sort of noisy elements. Um, they talk a lot about plant selection um, that can provide guidance for blind people. So if you have strong smelling plants, like there's somewhere they put mint in a certain area and it can be used for wayfinding for blind mm -hmm. people. Yeah, so there's um, some pretty cool things in there. There's even one um, was a brain injury rehabilitation clinic that created a sensory garden. Mm. So it was full of strongly smelling um, plants, strange textures, different colored shapes and aromas. Uh, and they found that exposing people to that sensory stimulation could actually help bring back their memories after an acquired brain injury. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So within stormwater itself, yeah, it's a lot of that, just including those noisy elements, the visual elements, um, and really making them more accessible, not just in a, you know, let's put a wheelchair ramp there and a concrete path here, but accessible in terms of does it feel safe and welcoming to go down there? Um, are there seating opportunities? So even in that sense, we could put, you know, even just placing the rocks around differently could mean that they're more inviting to, you know, step on across the waterway or sit on um, to make it, really more inviting. So you're trying to create what is a very natural space and make mm. it look not engineered because there's so many sort of risk things that you open up if you make it look like a safe engineering place and somebody stubs their toe. It's very much doing it to look natural with the inherent risks of a natural place. Yeah. But, you know, then providing those social health benefits at the end of it. So then are you guys recreating the wheel or do you talk to psychologists and things? Because I was listening to a talk the other day about um, sensory treatments and there are sensory bags you can get and how to ground people and um, alert their senses. Um, so do you get on site consultants for that or have you got, like where do you get your information from? A lot of it for me, um, certainly, on the personal safety side of things, it's me. I feel like I'm expecting someone to jump out of the bushes every day <laughs> and I live my life accordingly. Yes. So I'm quite good at identifying personal safety risks. Um, in terms of other stuff, some of it's intuitive, some of it's from reading 
Google and, you know, LinkedIn and stuff like that um, and through the research that we did on the paper. But there's, it's not the sort of thing that I think we would engage a specialist to come in and review the design. I think it's, for me, the best way to actually get change is to just try and embed some of this stuff in our design guidelines yeah. so that people don't have to think about it. And we do have one sort of guideline that touches on it um, that Healthy Land and Water put out, which is the Living Waterways Framework. And it goes fully into all of this and talks about including, you know, even artwork and educational signage and more of these social elements into the design. But that's one document and it's not often called up. Okay. Like it's not a compulsory document. So it relies on having a client seeing the benefit of that or a designer that's really going to push it. Yeah. Have you started to see any evaluations or do any evaluations to see if all of this actually has a positive social impact on mental health? Because today is World Mental Health Day. Yes, it is. Um, I try and stay out of the science and the why part as much as I can because like I feel like a lot of the justification is there and even if there's not a paper that says it, it's like in my gut, I know this is the right way to go. Uh, and I try and focus more on what practical change can I make to make the design better? Because yep. I just like the designing part. It's like, yep. I'm good at that. I know there's other people that are good at the researchy part and the education part. So I'll let them have that. Um, but yeah, I think I sort of just want to get on with it and just start incorporating stuff into design um, and preempt the guideline while also advocating like hell to get the guidelines updated. Yeah. So what sort of reaction have you had so far? You've given a couple of talks. Are people sort of pushing back going, nah, that's hippy dippy. We don't need that. Or are they <laughs> starting to um, embrace what it is that you're doing and trying to, I guess, open up and learn more? Yeah. Of um, the feedback I've had has been like 100% positive. And I suppose that's not to say there aren't negative thoughts, but they don't come up and tell me. Okay. So I have had a lot of feedback and a lot of the feedback I had even last week was people's individual stories uh, and really just, I suppose, on the empathy and teams aspect, thanking me for giving them a voice, I suppose, because I tend to say things that other people might keep on the inside. <laughs> so ah, like standing up in front of, almost 200 people and confessing that, you know, that I've struggled with health issues, that I've struggled um, with, you know, keeping going in this environment and that it doesn't fit. Um, and having a lot of people come up to me and confess their own issues and, you know, health issues and things that they don't tell anybody else. Yeah. Um, presumably because they're worried about, you know, the imp people's perceptions of them, as a result, um, in terms of the design aspects, I presented at a lot of industry conferences as well. And I was often surprised at how many people turn up to those. Because obviously you've got concurrent streams, or perhaps not obviously, but conferences, there's normally 
you know, at least three different yeah. options of which session you want to go to. Uh, so when I did the first one back in 2016, and it was purely talking about the mental and health benefits of designing our waterways differently. And the room was sort of packed out and basically all of my clients at the time were in the room um, and all had sort of positive things to say. So I think at least in a stormwater engineering sense, there's an appetite for it. And there's a lot yeah. of other consultants as well that are really fighting for this stuff and doing great designs, but it hasn't perhaps infiltrated other aspects of engineering that are viewed possibly as the more, you know, sort of hardcore maths and numbers discipline. Yeah. At this point in my career that I'm in a position, and again, this is my experience. I know not everybody's the same, but I feel quite confident now to just tell people what's going on hmm. and how it affects me so that we can find a better solution. Hmm. So like some of the things like there's a, uh, an office room, a meeting room in our building. And because we've sublet part of the building, it no longer has lift access for us, which means you've got to go up like two flights of stairs to get there. So I just, Decline, like I Skype into those meetings, even though I'm in the same building, but I just tell people why. Yeah. And if you tell people why, they don't go, gee, Katie's really antisocial. Like, yeah, why lazy. doesn't she, have, you know, she's obviously lazy, you know, all those sorts of things. So I just tell people straight off that reduces my stress of worrying about what everybody thinks because I do that. I know it's not yeah, great, but do. I do. Um, yeah. And proactively then I've now made sure that anyone who books that meeting room gets an automated message that says this is not lift accessible have you considered the accessibility requirements of all your meeting attendees yeah um we've also got another room and just the aircon is terrible and it's always too hot and heat affects me okay um so I don't go to meetings in that room for more than sort of quarter of an hour half an hour if I need to otherwise I'll Skype in and if you just tell people that again they don't just think you're lazy and antisocial yeah. and not committed to the project there's a reason and i'm skyping in so that you get the best from me and the best for the project yeah and the thing about empathy is like i don't know necessarily what that's like but i know the guts that it takes to actually stand up for yourself and so i understand that so if we mm. know that katie's being honest and katie's being vulnerable that takes guts you know what I mean? Like yeah, I heard that word last week too. <laughs> yeah, Being then, vulnerable. It is. It's terrifying. Well, absolutely. Because, and that's, that's that stigma part. It shouldn't take guts to be vulnerable. It shouldn't take guts. You know what I mean? But it does. We always assume mm. that other people are judging us, but you can connect with that. Like yeah, people aren't doing stuff. And I think a lot of people, especially in the workplace, environment we forget that people don't do stuff that annoys us to annoy us people don't yeah. wake up in the morning and go let's see who i can piss off today they <laughs> you know what i mean like people are genuinely they want to do their job they want to be a ha have a happy life the fact that it annoys you says more about you mm. than them i so, think one of the big turning points for me was when i had a senior manager actually confess to me that he struggled to get out of bed in the morning too and rock up at this job. Yeah. 
because I like at that point I was seven months pregnant, working crazy long hours, and just overwhelmed, and broke my no crying at work rule because he got me. And I, he was just like, "You seem stressed. Can we help you?" And I was like, "Oh my god." Um, <laughs> but when he actually confessed that as well, I'm like, "Well, why don't why don't you say that? Why don't you act in a way?" Yeah. that shows some empathy that we're all like that and it doesn't have to be like that. Because that's a superpower that, that he's got then. Yeah, and you know, I, I did it for a long time, drank the Kool-Aid and rocked up and did crazy hours and just pushed at the sacrifice of everything else in your life. Um, but it, like, I just don't think it should be like that because I find engineering really fun. That's why <laughs> I do it and I'm so stubborn. I should have quit 50 times for the you know, for the culture over the years, but I keep doing it because I'm stubborn because I really enjoy it. And it's like, why can't you do engineering with a smile on your face and all having lives and leaving at the end of the day? Why should it be and angry, you know? But also being proud of what you've built or designed and knowing that that has an impact. Like I think that Mm. a lot of people look for purpose in their life but if you can actually get it from engineering, not go, oh, well, whatever I did, I did. But what yeah. I'm designing makes people's lives better. Mm. That, that also is positive for mental health. Going, no, no, no. I actually have a purpose. If I do this well, other people have a better life. They have a better experience of it, which has a knock-on effect. Mm. Like having that personal sense of, contribution and 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 purpose is also good for mental health yeah definitely like i love explaining to the kids what i do because they think i'm a, some sort of superhero because i tell them that i you know i make creeks that are nice to play in which is a pretty good summary of a big chunk of what i do yeah um so yeah it's good to explain that to the kids but i think like stormwater engineering specifically there's always an arg- like a back and forth between being seen as somewhat of a service provider versus an actual kind of complete proactive part of engineering. So in the service provider sense, you don't want to be just given a road design, bang out a drainage design and move on and not kind of have any say in the project itself. And that's the sort of service provider model that we try and get away from because it's not good for your team's morale and kind of sense of value. You know, you're not just banging out design after design without any thought in it. So it's trying to shift to this is a, you know, a complete thing in its own. Like I used to work in a specialist firm that just did waterway and stormwater stuff. And you, there's so many more elements to it, looking at the social and the environmental outcomes. Yep. Um, but yeah, it definitely affects people's well-being. how much they're involved in that versus just what about autonomy? Oh, doing another drainage design. Yay. Yay. <laughs> yeah. And that's the thing, like, I mean, we can always sort of bring it back to that self-determination theory, which is if somebody feels autonomous over what they're doing, they're not just being told what to do. They feel part of a team and part of, so that's that related part. And they also feel competent and capable of doing what it is. So they're offered the training and then that's how you get 
behavior change and good teams and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, everything you've said sort of relates perfectly to that little theory that I love. So if people, if, if the millions of listeners at home are listening and the engineers are listening, <laughs> what is it that you want them to be aware of change an attitude, change a behavior, change a condition? What is it that they can do in their world that what impact will that have? Why is it worth their time? Yep. If you want to keep the engineering community going, don't be a, a rude word. <laughs> you know, don't be horrible and actually consider your staff are complete humans with lives outside of work. And the fact that you'll get more from them in terms of quality and, you know, timely deliverables that matter um, to a project. If you actually understand them, understand their motivations, how to keep them interested and stay in the profession at all, um, and, you know, just have that better understanding of your team that we're not just rocking up to work, to work until we drop dead, basically. Mm. Um, and it's not, <laughs> you know, it's not good for them. It's not good for the company in the end. It's not good for the industry either, as well as just being the nice altruistic thing to do. Um, so yeah, trying to break down those paradigms so that you don't burn people out because it's a huge issue for engineering. Uh, but in terms of, you know, engineering in the actual design or empathy in the designs that we're putting out there, I think we don't really have a choice these days. It seems like everything going into the future, we've got a lot of digital stuff that means we can do things faster and, you know, prettier outputs and all the rest of it. The thing that's coming now really is the need for the social benefits so where perhaps previously it wasn't given a lot of weight, like we just wanted what was cheapest and would do the job from a technical sense, the challenges going into the future with a more digital world, um, I think is really going to focus on the social implications. And you can either get ahead of that and start sort of training your staff now and educating and getting it into the guidelines if you've got the power to do that or, you know, be caught on the back burner because your competitors are doing that now. Yeah, like, and that's what the market's yeah. after now, you would think as well. If they're going to they're gonna see mm -hmm. you versus your competitor and, hey, if you've got that social conscience, yep. then, yeah, that's what people are going for. And a lot of it, it doesn't necessarily take more time or more budget um, to do it's just making slight tweaks and having that thought at the start of a job what's the implications of this what are the social outcomes what are the you know even just looking at your project and looking at what sort of land uses are around your project because yeah. that's where they come up with things like you know playgrounds for blind people and everybody but the target for blind people because there's a blind school around the block yeah so look at what the land use is around your site and that human context of what you're doing and not just what pops up on yeah. the lines on the map you know all righty i'm leanne butterworth that was katie fletcher thank you so much